Oh, that's great. Have you ever tried to find the perfect gift? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Uh, I like cash. Uh, just kidding. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Greg and I wanted to take a moment before we begin the message to make sure that everybody was aware of all the special opportunities coming up over the next several weeks at Four Corners. And so, Greg, why don't you tell folks what we got coming up next Sunday? Yeah, next Sunday is the big deal, but um, it's Christmas Eve Eve. We have that service every year since we began, except for one year when we had a blizzard. Uh, what makes it unique this year is that it's on Sunday, and so a lot of you have been asking and wondering, um, what's the schedule going to be like? Because on Christmas Eve Eve, it's always a night service because we do the whole candlelight thing and all that. So the schedule for next Sunday is there is no service in the morning. You can spend that time with your family last-minute shopping, whatever you want to do. But then Sunday evening, we'll have our Sunday services, which will also be our Christmas Eve Eve services. Three services this time because we don't think two will fit everybody that typically come out on a Christmas Eve. Eve. And so uh, the three service times are 5, 7, and 9. 5, right. 7, and 9. And th this is an incredible service because it is, it's family-friendly. This year we have a special treat. We've never had a, a space large enough to actually cater to the particular developmental needs of kids right. at Christmas Eve Eve. This year we do because we have our own facility. So your children um, up through middle school are going to have an incredible service uh, geared just for them. And so if you'd like for them to be checked in like you normally do on a Sunday morning, you'll do that. Your guests as well. And then you'll be able to come in here and we'll be able to be a little bit more focused with maybe without all the crying babies that we, we typically have. Right. It's going to be phenomenal. Right. Yeah, exactly. So don't forget, don't show up next Sunday morning for church. If you do, just bring a vacuum cleaner because there's plenty to clean up around here. You can just maybe vacuum for a couple hours. And, and Greg, it really is an okay time if people want to go visit another church. We don't think you're afraid or anything. Now, now, don't do anything for them. Don't volunteer or give anything right. like that. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What we'd like for you to do is steal every good idea they have grab all their free literature, and bring it and give it to us as a Christmas gift. Exactly, uh, exactly. No, but go ahead and visit other churches. We're, we're great with that. And then the next Sunday is a little interesting as well because we have a, another tradition around here. Right, what we do every year as well um, is we take the Sunday after Christmas Eve Eve service off. We don't gather as a congregation. Um, and so, again, this year that's unique um, because the time span in between services is going to feel a little long. And so what we don't want to have happen is you forget about us. Um, but come for Christmas Eve Eve next Sunday night, but take the next Sunday off. We do it for a couple particular reasons. So one of them is because we want you to spend some time focusing on your family. Um, we also want our staff and all of our volunteers, many of which serve uh, every Sunday or every other Sunday in one capacity or another, we want them just to get a break from the regular routine of serving and be able to focus on their families on a Sunday morning in a way that maybe they typically wouldn't get to do. So the Sunday after next Sunday, which makes it Sunday the 30th, 30th. Uh, no service at all. Um, spend time with your family. If you want, again, go to another church, steal some ideas, um, and then make sure you come back on the following Sunday, which will be the first Sunday in January. That's when we'll kick off the new year 
with our new series and uh, kind of get rolling, focusing on what God wants us to focus on for 2013. Greg, we started that in part because when we first started our church, uh, a lot of us were very young and we would all leave on the holidays and go and visit our families and then trying to get enough volunteers to run the program that we typically run was just hard. So we honestly, we thought, we prayed, we talked to other churches and um, this practice of taking a kind of a Sabbath week that week um, it's just been really, really um, good for us. And we're, we're hoping that at the end of kind of two weeks of crazy schedule, you'll be anxious to get back into to normal four corners around here. And we're anxious to start 2013 in this amazing space that God's given us and see what all God's yeah. going to do. So let me recap it one more time. And if you've been around any of the previous Christmases, it really is the exact same schedule, just the EV falls on a Sunday. So one more time for those of you who are just waking up um, like me. <laughs> it is next Sunday morning, no service. Next Sunday night, 5, 7, and 9, come to any, come to all that you want to. There's a kids program if you want to take advantage of that. It should be a blast. Um, the following Sunday, December 30th, no service. Spend time with your family. Take a Sabbath, especially those of you who volunteer all the time, who have worked hard getting this building ready. Rest some and re-energize for the next uh, service, which will be the first Sunday in January. Sounds great. Same times, 9, 15, and 11 a.m. Good. Well, I'm going to do the all message. Right. Go ahead. Guys, I'm so excited today about the message. I'm going to share with you a particular passage of Scripture that I haven't heard really ever spoken on at Christmas before. Um, it's a story in our Old Testament that is connected to the events in the New Testament telling the story of Christmas. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to a familiar passage to begin with in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2 in your New Testament Bible. Luke chapter 2 is that place where we get a lot about the story of Christmas. And you're going to hear this um, again at the Christmas Eve service. This is the actual text that I'm going to use. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited about that. That message has been done for about three weeks. And so I'm very excited to give that to you. But today I want to give you some background information as we look at how important Christmas is. And I want to help us understand this crazy dynamic that tends to happen. And you, you may find yourself there. And if not there now, maybe you were or perhaps you will be. And I want us to take a look at what God has to say about it. So in Luke chapter 2, here, here it begins on the screens behind me. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph, who we talked about last week, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the, here's our phrase for today, to the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room, no guest room available for them. Now, we're talking about this amazing Christmas story. And here we are in this incredible season where you drive around in your car and there are lights um, to look at. My, my kids like that. Every year we get to do the holiday and lights down at Sharon Woods. And um, t this evening, in fact, because we're a little bit behind as our, as our family tradition, we're, we're setting up our own Christmas tree and having the family Christmas party with all the relatives tomorrow. So it's a holiday season full of, for many of us, activity and fun. And there are reminders of the season all around us. We're buying our, our gifts online or in the stores. We're thinking about the most important gift to give to the people we love. And it's this crazy dynamic that can happen sometimes where we get so caught up in the activity of Christmas that it's real easy. I, I've done this. 
to catch myself missing what Christmas is really all about. In fact, there will be a few million people in the United States alone this year who will get caught up in celebrating Christmas and never even stop to think about what it's really all about. Even believers, even those of us that call on the name of Jesus sometimes can get caught up and forget what it's really all about. And in this message series called Simply Christmas, like we did last week, like I'll do for the Christmas Eve service, I wanted us to make sure that there were a few things we didn't forget to reflect on. So that each of us could experience all that God wants for us this holiday season. And in my personal life, the thing I like about Christmas is it kind of catapults me into the new year. I spend the last hundred days or so of every year thinking about what's happened in the year, where we've come, what we didn't get accomplished, what we did. I try to celebrate and reflect and make changes. But then at Christmas, for me, I try to let go of the evaluative phase of my year and move forward into thinking about the year to come. And I want to give you a practical tool to do that as well. In order to do that today, I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament that first part of your Bible, the first half or so. There was a line in the passage we read in Luke chapter 2 that talked about the town of David, Bethlehem. And I want to take you to an incident in David's life that I think is analogous to a lot of what happens at Christmas, or at least potentially happens at Christmas. Before I even take you to the passage, I want to catch you up to the story that we find ourselves in. So you may recall the story of David, the little shepherd boy that one day while he was tending the fields he doesn't know yet but there's a visitor at his father's house at his house and the visitor is there he's a prophet to anoint the new king of israel oh there's already a king his name is saul saul is from the tribe of benjamin and the bible describes saul this way that he stands head and shoulders above everybody else he he, well he's kind of like if you're in the lobby with a bunch of people and pastor nate walks in that's kind of kind of what Saul is. He's, he's a tall one, and he, he, he looks regal. He, he looks important. And Saul becomes the first king of Israel, but Saul doesn't follow God's way. And God gets frustrated with Saul and gives him a chance to repent, and Saul refuses. And so God tells Saul, the king, through the prophet Samuel, I'm going to pull the kingdom away from you and your family. I'm going to give it to somebody else. And this, of course, frustrates Saul, and he, he gets kind of suspicious It sets in motion a whole series of events in his life that create all kinds of chaos. And in fact, the prophecy comes true. Well, the kingdom is passed to that little shepherd boy. On the day that the prophet is at his house, going through each of his brothers, trying to determine which one should be king. And after going through the first several brothers, he looks at the dad and says, Do you have any more sons? Because I don't sense any of the future kings of Israel are here in the room. And the father says, Well, I have this other son. He's young and... He's doing work. He's out in the field tending the sheep. And the prophet says, send for him. And and, and David is sent for, comes to the house. And the prophet pours oil over little shepherd David's head and says, one day at the right time, you will be the king of Israel. And when God sets up this lineage, it will be a kingdom whose impact never ends. Now this is special because up to this point in Israel's history, They had seen dynasty after dynasty, raiding party after raiding party, come in and set up small little kingdoms that had significant influence, but only for a little while. And and then they had judges in their history that would come up and have significant military influence, but only for maybe 40 years. 
And here's a promise on a little shepherd boy that one day when the kingdom is established with you at the head, its influence will never end. Well, the next scene in David's life, maybe, maybe you know this story, this is the most famous one. His brothers, his older brothers that were passed over to be king are on the battlefield. And there is a significant struggle between them and their primary enemy, a group of people called the Philistines. Now today we call that land, often we'll call it Palestine. The word Philistine and Palestine are connected, all right? And so the Philistines who live near the coast, right on the Mediterranean Sea in the land of Israel, they don't like who the Bible calls Israelites. And they're constantly fighting all the way through their Old Testament. The Philistines are a consistent enemy. And the Philistines were fighting in the tradition of the day. Sometimes rather than everybody fighting and everybody dying, they'd send a representative to fight. And then the opposing army would have a representative and they would fight. And then the winner of the small skirmish, the winner would declare who was the winning side and everybody would benefit without everybody having to make the sacrifice. And so the Philistines had an impressive, impressive guy to send as their representative, a man by the name of Goliath. Goliath was from a town called Gath. It's a little city right there on the Mediterranean. Goliath of Gath, and the Bible describes him as as almost nine feet tall. So he was taller than the king of Israel. David's father says to him, I want you to take some some bread, cheeses, various sausages to to the guys on on, on the field, to your brothers. And when David shows up on the scene, there his brothers are in a tent, cowering from Goliath. And there is the king of Israel, cowering Saul from Goliath. And David is frustrated. Maybe he remembers what happened with, with Samuel when the oil was poured over his head. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's just living with a heart sold out to God, believing that this is God's people, it's God's destiny, and if God said we're going to do okay, then we can just put our trust in him. David says, let me at him. And everybody's like, no, no, you're too little. Finally, David convinces the king to let him go. And with a slingshot, he faces Goliath, one stone in the sling, round and round, right in the middle of the forehead, and he fells Goliath right there on the battlefield. And there's a hush as David rushes over and grabs Goliath's own sword that he could barely lift, and he cuts the giant's head off. And this begins the most popular song in all of ancient Israel. It went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And all the little ladies and all the little middle school girls, kind of like a Justin Bieber kind of thing, would run around talking about David. I think he had kind of a haircut that came down like this. And David was the man. He was the Justin Bieber slash military leader of the day. And all the little ladies wanted to marry him. And this began a series of events where David identified himself as a man of significant military conquest. Well, Saul already knew what was going to happen to his dynasty, and he was frustrated. He was concerned. He thought maybe David was the guy. And to make matters worse, David becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So David is often in the house. And one day, Saul was so upset in such a fit of rage that David grabs his little harp and he plays. And in the playing of the music, Saul calms down. One day while David is playing, trying to keep Saul calm, Saul Saul grabs his spear and hurls it and barely misses David. And David gets insight. This guy doesn't like me. And he starts, sets off on, on, on hiding. By this time, he has a massive following. Some 600 men are following him. All these stories are told right there in your Bible in the books of First and Second Samuel. 
David is running through the mountains of Israel with 600 men, hiding in caves, sometimes in groups of five, all the way up to the group of, of 600. And Saul is on pursuit. In one particular occasion, Saul steps into a cave to, to do his business. And David has an opportunity to kill him, but he, he lets Saul go. And he runs away. And, and for chapters in your Bible, there is this cat and mouse game between the king of Israel, current, and the future king of Israel. It's, it's a devastating story in the middle of your Bible that tells a stark truth about human nature. It's one of the reasons why I really enjoy the Bible and reading it, because it doesn't paint the heroes in just perfect pictures. It shows them in their distress, in their circumstance, in their sin. David has an opportunity to take Saul's life and stop the constant pressure on him to stay one step ahead. He doesn't take it. The story we're going to look at in just a moment is another one of those episodes. Saul and his army, 3,000 men against 600 of David's, a 5 to 1 ratio. They're chasing him through the hills, and it's a personal mission from Saul. There is a bounty on young David's head. Anybody that gives David or his men shelter, they face the wrath of the king. But God has shown himself faithful to David and has given him a promise. One day you will be the king of Israel. One day all of this will be yours. One day that thing that I put in your heart when you used to sit in front of the sheep and write the songs that became in our Bible the book of Psalms. One day all of that stuff is going to have a chance to flourish under your leadership. And as long as you follow me, David, as long as you follow me, you and I, we're going to work this thing out together. Well, Saul and his men were chasing, chasing, chasing David. And one day he falls asleep. Sounds very similar to a story just a few chapters earlier. Saul falls asleep. And the Bible says that God calls Saul and his men to fall into a deep sleep. And David and his men actually just kind of stumble up on Saul. And they see him laying there with his primary bodyguard right beside of him. Saul and his bodyguard and then the army just encamped all about. And Saul and, his, and David and his men just kind of happen up on him. And they see Saul laying there with his, with his spear right beside of him. David picks up his spear, and as he does, the man that's with David says, let me have his spear. And in one swift movement, I won't even need two shots. I'll end this battle right now. And David says, no, 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 you you can't do that, because God isn't done quite yet with Saul, and God's the one that's going to raise us up. We're not going to make this happen on our own. And David's buddy's a little frustrated, but David's walking in the path that God has for him. Saul wakes up because on a hill a few hundred feet away, he hears a man yelling, saying, Hey, wake up. Captain of the guard, wake up. You haven't done your job tonight. Nobody protected the king. And you can imagine that the captain of Saul's army, his personal bodyguard, wakes up in a fright. He, he's terrified. What happened to the king? And then, and then from across the hill, the voice says, I've got his spear right here. The very spear he went to sleep with, the one that he never leaves his side. I've got it right here. I could have killed him. You and your men, you're all in trouble because you didn't protect the king. And at this point, Saul begins to rouse. And he says, I I recognize that voice. David, is that you? And David says, Saul, king of Israel, uh, anointed one by God. It's me. And I don't mean you any harm. This is proof. Once again, I don't mean you any harm. And then Saul says the most interesting thing to David. He says, David, 
I've been a fool. I shouldn't chase you. It's obvious you're not trying to get me. And then he says, I'll never, ever chase you again. You don't have to worry about me anymore. Now, friends, this is a good day in David's life. Because the entire army of Israel, 3,000 men, are going to stop chasing David. They're going to stop putting the bounty on his head. They're going to pull back the orders that say, if you give them food, if you give them refuge, you're in trouble. David and his men are going to be able to go about normal life. They basically have been pardoned of any wrongdoing, if there was any wrongdoing to pardon them from. It's a good day. And the chapter ends that way. And then when you turn the page in your Bible, the very next sentence in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, here's what it says for our purposes today. Saul had just said, I won't hurt you. But then David thought to himself, do you remember the story in, in, the, in, the, in the town of David? This is that David. Then David thought to himself, one of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing, the best option I have is to escape to the land of the Philistines, the sworn enemy of Israel. Then Saul will give up searching for me wherever, uh, for, Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maog, king of Gath. Now, when the original readers of your Bible, when Samuel first wrote this, and he had this parchment on which the stories were told, and the original readers read this story for the first time, when we got to verse 2, and David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maog, king of Gath, everybody in the crowd went, ah, no, he didn't go there, not to to Gath, because Gath is the very place where Goliath was from. This is the the seat of power, of opposition to all things Israel. All that God was going to do in this nation of Israel, raising up a people to bless the world, out of which Jesus would be born, then the whole world would be blessed through that. All that God was going to do in Israel that he did through Moses and Joseph and the stories we talked about around here, Gath stood in direct opposition to that. I want you to to just try to, for just a moment, put yourself in David's place and look at this emotional roller coaster that he's on. He's just had a significant victory. He just operated in the power and in the might of God and walks up on Saul and his army and has an opportunity to get rid of all of his problems, doing it his own way, but instead he has the wisdom and foresight to say, No, God's in charge. I'm going to let him take care of this. He promised it. If he promised it, he'll do it. And so he doesn't invoke wrath upon Saul. He protects the king's anointing, that specialness, because God wasn't quite done with Saul. And he has a significant victory where Saul looks at him across the hillside and says, I'm calling off the dogs. We're not after you anymore. And he is at the highest of the high. The 600 men are looking at David and saying, thank you. The the, the fight is over. We can go home to our wives, to our kids. We don't have to live in hiding anymore. Very high. And then the very next verse in your Bible says that David thought to himself. In in one version, uh, in the English version, and it's a very appropriate rendering, it says, 
And David pondered in his heart. David thought in his heart. His heart said to him. He had this emotion that said, this guy saw one day he's going to get me. One day he's going to get me. In the middle of the significant season of his life, he has this significant, terrible emotion that all the challenges in his life are going to catch up with him. That he won't be victorious. That that promise that was poured over his head as a little boy, that God had spoken over him, somehow that's going to elude him. He's not going to be able to grab hold of that. And in the middle of being blessed by God significantly, he says to himself, in the deepest places, in his heart of hearts, he says to himself, he's going to get me, I know it. This thing is not going to end well. And then he does the most, that's the most senseless thing in the middle of wondering in this emotional roller coaster that he's on. He says to himself, the best option I can possibly conceive for my life right now is, I'm going to go over to the enemy's camp. I'm going to go to the Philistines, the one who still hate me. The ones who know that I am the one that killed their greatest warrior. I'm going to go there. And he goes and encamps himself in the middle of Gath. And submits himself to the king. And begins the most gruesome chapter of his life where he virtually becomes a madman. A hired killer for the king of Gath. And he kills his brothers and his sisters. Not literally, but his Distant relatives in the land of Israel, all along the skirmish towns on the borders between the two. He goes crazy. Did you catch it? At the end of his highest high, when when the promise of God should seem as real as it's ever seen, God has just protected him. I mean, the evidence of God's activity is all around him. He says in his heart of hearts, somehow, I can't obtain that. That's not going to be my destiny. He just experienced significant faith displayed, and now he's at the lowest of his spiritual development. I I don't think this is true for everybody. But I've heard enough from within our congregation and from from my larger friend group without to know that in some ways, this is the experience of some of us at Christmas. And maybe if not you... You know somebody who's here. There is evidence of God's activity all around us. He's shown himself faithful. You've made it through another year. You've overcome obstacles that you thought you weren't going to overcome. For many of you, your marriage was hanging by a thread, but today it's better. For many of you, our our financial situations, we wondered how we were going to make it at all. And today, you're here, and you have a little, a little extra. Not a lot, but a little extra. And in the middle of God's favor displayed to us, sometimes this crazy thing can happen spiritually. Sometimes, right on the heels of the biggest blessings, where we look at ourselves, and in our heart of hearts, we think, that thing that God has promised, that won't be my destiny. That thing that God has foreshadowed, spoken over, That thing that he promises believers who put their faith and trust in him. Oh, it may work for others, but somehow it's going to be elusive to me. And sometimes right on the edge of our greatest victories, spiritually, there is this deceptive pull of the enemy. And sometimes it's so effective, at least it was in David's life right here. 
where we think that the best we can do is to get away from this and maybe go back to our old ways, go back to the other side, if you will. I don't know why it is at Christmas when we drive by and see the lights and we put up our trees and we buy gifts for people we love and we think about the greatest gift the world has ever given and there are reminders all around us that for some of us, even some of us that are people of faith, the beauty that is God, the joy that it is to be his son or his daughter is elusive to us. We as a staff, we don't, we don't want that to be your experience this Christmas. Now, we can't force you, of course, to have a great emotional experience with God. That's even kind of silly to think about. But we do want to challenge you, and I want to challenge you to think about how this Christmas season is impacting you. There's a reason that every year we celebrate the coming of Jesus and all that it holds. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, For unto you a son is born. And the government will rest upon his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the, the Prince of Peace. These are the promises of God to those of us that put our faith and trust in him. Upon his shoulders the government will rest, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God's will will be worked. And yet the struggles of life, the challenges, sometimes just the constant run will wear us down to where in the face of all of this God stuff all around us, sometimes we will believe a lie that says, that really won't be my destiny. God really won't be with me. And Christmas comes by every year to remind us that the promises of God are true, and they're true for you. I think that this is a casual observation. It's not really a study I've done. But I think there are two specific dynamics that keep us sometimes from grabbing hold of the meaning of Christmas fresh and new every year and grabbing hold of the promises of God for us and our family. I want to just kind of explain these to you very quickly without spending a lot of time and, and ask you to ask yourself in your heart, and maybe in one or two of these dynamics, is this possibly part of the reason why you or somebody you care about might be missing some of the joy that is, that is Christmas, some of the promise of God that's available to you right now. The promise of God that maybe isn't fully realized, but there's evidence that God is working His plan all around you if you'd open your eyes, but maybe you can't even see it. Here are the two dynamics. The first one is that Christmas is forgiving. Christmas is forgiving. <laughs> forgiving as one word. I have found that sometimes Christians, let me, can I just be honest, sometimes me, that in the constant run of life, when I feel like it's nipping at my heels and I'm working at something, especially if there's an emotional drain associated with it, it's really easy for me to get my feelings hurt. And it's really easy for me to pile on offense and to feel a little bit of bitterness at certain people because things didn't go the way they wanted or they, I perceived them to be in my way or I don't think they cared like they should have cared or they didn't do what they needed to have done or they let me down or they didn't keep a promise. If the promise of Christmas is about anything, it's about letting go of offenses between each other. It's about families reconciling. It's about brothers and sisters in Christ coming clean 
and not holding offense against one another. It's about churches coming together in unity and working towards the common mission. The very reason Jesus came to this world was for people, for lost people to be found, for found people to grow in faith and get on board and find their purpose in God. But I have found when offenses have piled up and I haven't dealt with them, they put a block between me and what God wants from me. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in some of your lives. I've seen it in people I care deeply about. Christmas is about forgiveness. The Bible says it this way, that while we were still sinning, while we were still offending God, Christ died for us. That God sent him in the world to give his life for us while we were sitting in the middle of our offense. The whole purpose was so that God created a vehicle where we could experience his forgiveness. And in all the lighting and all the buying and all the Christmas treeing and caroling and if we miss this forgiveness thing, I'm telling you, the effect for many of us will be exactly what David experienced. Not the highs of Christmas, but the, the lows of Christmas. I, I wonder if a just five-minute time of personal introspection where you said to yourselves, what offenses am I holding against my spouse, against my wife, against my husband, against my kids, against my brother, my sister, my, my parents, my neighbor? against people in my church, and you did what you could do to let that go and to forgive. I didn't say correct them. I said let the offense go. We struggle with forgiveness, and here's why. One of my favorite pastors says it this way. In the shadow of my hurt, forgiveness feels like a decision to reward the one who hurt me. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another. When I think about what Christmas means and that God sent a Savior, not just to the shepherds on the hillside to whom the angels said, for unto you is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When I realized that the you that was spoken by those angels wasn't just for them, but it was for the whole world. It specifically was for me. That God sent me a Savior, one who could forgive my sin. And I think about that and then I hold up the offenses that I've been storing, the bitterness that I've been building, it gets easier to deal with them. I think God gives us the gift of Christmas, this beautiful time that sometimes its meaning is elusive to us, in part so that we could reflect again that you and I were sinners saved by grace, a loving God that we did nothing to earn His forgiveness. And He looks at us and He says, so why are you carrying all of that junk against other people? Forgiveness doesn't settle. Forgiveness doesn't settle who is to be blamed. But it is trying to figure out what has been taken from us and then canceling that debt. I think Christmas is for forgiving. And when we do that, I think what happens is we level out the experience and then we can begin to grab hold of what God wants for each of us. The real impact of Christmas, that it... It goes beyond just a day or an evening or a night or a smile in our kid's face or our niece's and nephew's face. It goes into our hearts in a way that when our heart wants to deceive us and say, it's not for you, when we've let go of these offenses and we remember that we were the ones forgiven, then the promises of God that he's spoken over us, the path that he's on, it's clearer. It speaks louder. I think Christmas is forgiving. And then the other thing I think that helps pave the way to 
suck all the marrow out of Christmas for us is that Christmas is for giving. I really do believe that the greatest joys come from the gifts we give and not the ones we receive. That's why every year, even in the middle of of us building this building, we wanted to set aside some time to give some money away. I have to do that as a pastor or else we don't have integrity with the season. We can't make it all about us. We have to set aside a portion of what God has blessed us with. And when I do this on a personal level, forget just the corporate level as a church. What I'm doing is I'm paving the way for the full impact, the full spiritual impact of Christmas to, in, to touch me. And when I help those I have influence over, like my kids, understand that Christmas isn't about begging for everything you want and then getting so brokenhearted when you don't get it. When I help them understand that it really is about giving because God gave to us, I set them up to continue to experience the real joys of Christmas. But when I let them be immature, and it is immature, to think that Christmas is about them and that they should ask for everything they want, and when they don't get it, they have a right to feel disappointed, I'm setting them up for a life of immaturity, emotionally and spiritually. It's my obligation to train my children that they do not have a right to anything in this world. That fairness left at the Garden of Eden. But God came alongside and loved and gave. And that if we claim we love, we have to give. I think that the reason we give gifts at Christmas isn't so that we can receive them, but the, the giver can experience what God wanted for us to experience when He gave His Son. Love put in action. So we rally around kids typically. And we give to Pastor James John in India. We'll be doing that this Christmas Eve. The offering we take, the money will go there. And we'll give a portion of it to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home. This year, instead of buying a month's worth of food like we did last year, we're going to give to their counseling program so that kids who have been abused can begin to get the help that they need. And me and my family, with my kids, we will have discussions about why it is they're not all getting new iPads. That's what they want. Good God, Christmas has gotten expensive in our house. But they're not all going to get new iPads, in part because, first of all, that's silly, but secondly because we're going to give a portion of this money away. And I want them to feel that small sting that comes from an intentional choice to say, it's not about me. I want them to grow up a little bit. Because I know that when I do that, I set them up to experience all that God has for them. I can't give them everything they want. There will come a day when I physically won't be able to. What then? Will I have paved the path so that they then can experience what it looks like to rely on God, knowing that people will let you down? That our Heavenly Father won't? And will they know that there's a well they can go to? that will constantly replenish them emotionally. And it won't be the well that says, give me, give me, give me, it's about me. Please, everybody look at me, give me what I want, I have a special day coming. It will be the well that says, what can I do for you? And that's a well they can go to their entire lives. So we'll give to Pastor James John, to the orphanage in India, and to the widow's home, and to the church there. And we'll give him money unrestricted and say, wherever the need is, that's where you need to give it because you're doing a great work among these kids. And we'll give the Smoky Mountain Children's Home saying, these kids that have been abused, 
They need a lot of help. I think about what happened in Connecticut, and I think, what if that man had gotten help long before? What if there were a group of people that loved him and invested in him? They could see the signs. I want that for those kids in the Smoky Mountain Children's Home who've already experienced so much tragedy in their life and difficulty as their parents have been pulled away from them, many times through crime and sometimes through death. And and I want to give some money here in this place so that our kids can have people build into them and say, look, you are important and you are special, but the world doesn't revolve around you. Let me ask you a question. What if that coworker you're struggling with at work had had somebody in their ear going, the world doesn't revolve around you? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. But what if your spouse had somebody in their ear all through their developmental years saying, the world doesn't revolve around you? <laughs> what if you had had somebody in your ear during your developmental years saying, you're important, you're special, but the world doesn't revolve around you? I think Christmas is forgiving. And I think Christmas is forgiving. And I think that's how we grab hold of this special holiday and we take the meaning of Christmas and we apply it to our lives. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. I'm so excited about Christmas. I'm so excited about what God does around here. I'm so excited about the folks who are going to come on Christmas Eve Eve and hear the greatest story. Many of them, there will be dozens, it happens every year. They will take their first real steps of faith in Jesus. Some of them will be with us next year, and they will no longer be coming as guests. They will be bringing their friends as guests to hear the message. And that cycle of growth and development and change will begin in them. And they'll discover purpose and meaning. It's a great, great season. And I want you to experience it and not just hear about it. So here's a couple things we need to do. We need to talk to those folks in this room right now who haven't accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And just ask you, would you like to? God sent His Son for you so that you could have a relationship with him. And he didn't base it on anything you would do, anything you have done. He simply said, I love you enough right now as you are where you are that I would like you to be in a relationship with me. So if you'd like to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord for the first time, um, with the symbols playing in the background, that'd be great. Um, Go ahead and check that box and uh, make that commitment. All right. Next step B, if you'd like to get baptized and go public with your faith, that would be phenomenal as well. We'd like to celebrate you with you what God has done. But here's next step C. If you're kind of experiencing maybe a little bit of this, pray for me. I'm struggling to believe that the promise of Christmas is really for me, that the promises of Christmas are really mine. We'd like to just pray for you about that. And then next step D is a way of kind of moving forward here. I'm going to bring a guest with me to the Christmas Eve service. You can't guarantee that. We can't make people come, but you can kind of arrange a date, so to speak. Why don't you see what you can do about that, and uh, let's celebrate this amazing thing. And the next step be, I'm going to bring a financial gift to bless others in the Four Corners Christmas Missions offering. Now, I'm not asking you to give everything. Some of you have sacrificed, but what if you brought a token? And what if you talked about it as a couple? What if you talked about it to your nieces and nephews? What if you talked about it to your kids and said, we're going to give this to bless others, because at the end of the day, that's where real joy is found. Let's pray about those things right now. God, I want to thank you for the gift of Christmas. That you forgave us. And you showed us the path to real joy. It's in giving. Now, Father, help us as a church to live out all that you have put in front of us. And to show this community that we love them. And to give our best to them. 
and to show those here, near, and far what it is to have been blessed by God and out of that blessing to give back. God, I want to pray for our church, for those that aren't experiencing all that you have for them this holiday season, that you would help tear down the walls. If it's bitterness, God, help tear it down. Root out that bitterness in their hearts. Help them to forgive, to let go, even as you forgave them. And God, if it's in giving to others, God, help us to figure out a way to make it a priority to experience what you have for us. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen and amen. Would you guys stand with us as we continue to worship? to the 